It's really about empowering people to be able to work wherever they want, whenever they want. And that's the real game changer towards where we're going, because that's the thing that makes remote workers so incredibly excited to continue to work remotely. So they'll basically charge you less for the same amount of labor if you can just allow them to be able to work remotely. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Okay, so we should all know by now that the future of work is remote, or at least blended remote in office. So joining me today is an expert in all things remote work. He founded a 200-person company that sells time tracking software for remote teams. He also founded the largest conference on building and scaling remote teams. And most recently, he wrote a book focused on asynchronous remote work methodology, a real how-to. So it should be no surprise at all that we're here to talk about how to effectively grow and manage a remote work organization. Um, We're also going to dive a little into some founders' trials and tribulations and when to focus on getting attention versus when to focus on getting paying customers. So without further ado, founder of Time Doctor and author of Running Remote, Liam Martin, welcome to The Dirt. Thanks for having me, Jim. Really appreciate being here. And you'd think that the future of work is remote. But if you actually just saw an article last week by Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, he completely disagrees. Actually just came up with an article. I think there's a conspiracy around remote work right now. He said the answer to inflation and our problems in the economy is just getting people back into the office, said by the largest single holder of corporate real estate on planet Earth. I think there's a lot of that stuff that's really starting to come out of the woodwork now. And it's getting quite interesting now seeing how people are really reacting to the reality that a part of the economy that we've counted on for decades, which is the corporate leases that run like 20% of the GDP are now kind of disappearing and or not disappearing, but they're transitioning to something else, which is a very interesting and exciting time. Well, you got Larry Fink, you got Malcolm Gladwell, you got all these people coming out and talking about that. So I'm glad you pointed that out because that's where I'd love to start. Like what's your reaction to, you know, these, these expert business leaders talking about how remote work is, is not the future. They're trying to sell horse and buggies when the Model T is already out there. It's kind of over. Like, uh, just the reality is that remote work produces a more competitive work landscape where you can get better talent on the employer side. Your costs are significantly lower, lower from acquiring that talent. And more importantly, the workers that you do hire remotely are more productive than the workers that are in the office. This is just simply a better way to be able to extract capital out of corporations. Literally, like that's that's it, right? It's a better way to, as in chapter two of the book, we have the head of remote for GitLab 
And he said, this is a horse and buggy versus a model T moment where we're just recognizing that now we have this new way of running companies that is just fundamentally more efficient than the previous models that were there before. And I think that just we're starting to actually come to that realization as we're entering the post-pandemic era. So what comes out of this? Like, where, where, where does the rubber meet the road when all is said and done from your perspective? I think we're probably in the next 10 years, we're going to have more than 50% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. Right now, we're sitting at about 35%. In February of 2020, we were at 4%. By March of 2020, we were at 45%. We've dropped to 35% now. We're actually starting to go back up now. So our bottom point was about two months ago, and now we're arcing back up. Projection is 50% within the next five years. The salinity point for remote work for digital workers is 67% in the United States. McKinsey's saying that, not me. So I would probably say more than 50% of the U.S. workforce is definitely working remotely in the next 10 years. And I would say in the future, the vast majority of management will be happening remotely and not in person. So does the future look a lot more blended or is it, or is it one or the other? So I love the terminology that everyone's using in the market right now, which is work from home. And I, I love that term. I was originally kind of pissed off at it, but now I love it because it's a great differentiator between where I think we're going and where the kind of corporate stakeholders think that we're going. So work from home is there's a scary virus outside. I can't leave my house. I have to work at my kitchen table or in my closet somewhere with my wife, husband, kids, dog, annoying me. Remote work is the ability to be able to work from home, the ability to work from a co-working space, from a coffee shop, from the office if you want to, from a beach. I don't suggest you try the beach though. I did it once and it cost me 500 bucks to replace my keyboard laptop. But outside of that, you can do whatever you want. It's really about empowering people to be able to work wherever they want, whenever they want. And that's the real game changer towards where we're going because that's the thing that makes remote workers so incredibly excited to continue to work remotely. Yeah. So they'll basically charge you less for the same amount of labor if you can just allow them to be able to work remotely. The on app, there is a study that Buffer did uh, right before the pandemic and they've reconfirmed it now to around the same number a remote worker will take on average a $20,000 pay cut to be able to continue to work remotely. I mean, what other thing would you take a pay cut $20,000 for? I can't think of one off the top of my head. And so I think we're at the cusp of a very exciting phenomenon. As I think I said on uh, page seven of the book, I quote Andreessen and Horowitz, They've stated that remote work is a permanent civilizational shift more important than the internet itself. Because when you think about what the internet did, it really allowed you to be able to digitize information. But remote work is now allowing you to digitize labor. Mm. And this is way more important in the grand scheme of things when we're talking about global economies. Yeah, well said. And you keep referencing this book, right? Pages of it. And good for you for knowing. Oh, yeah. How 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 the book is designed and what page what is on. That's better than I could ever say. <laughs> but you, he, Liam is referencing his book <clears throat> that he just came out with called Remote Work, Running Remote, right? It's called Running Remote. Running Remote, yeah. And that came out of, uh, number one, the business that you've been running for over a decade now, right? In your, in your yes. uh, existing business. 
and also a conference business that you recently started and all of the lessons learned and connecting that to the atmosphere we live in. It's really good. We'll leave a note in the show notes of a link to, to Liam's book. But talk to me about that journey in, in, you know, from the beginning, from starting your first software company to ultimately, you know, having started a few companies and now having a book to talk about it. What's your why behind all of it? It's the why that is the mission statement of the company, which is empowering the world's transition towards remote work. That feeds into everything that we do. That's why we could write a book or we could build a conference or we could build a time tracking tool for remote some compliant legally to be able to work remotely. These things all impact that singular goal. And I tell founders all the time, if you don't actually have a mission, your why, there's no point in even starting because it gets tough, right? Particularly pre zero to one, like in that process where you've got nothing and you're trying to turn it into something, it's tough, right? There's, there's, Customers that just won't buy your stuff. There's customers that maybe end up buying your stuff for a month or two and then quitting and saying you're not good enough. You get beaten down a lot and you better be super passionate about what you're doing because if you're not, it's not worth pursuing. I have a a small story kind of connected to that. There was a guy that I knew who was building a startup connected to tattooing and tattoo parlors. And he had raised a whole bunch of money. And then I asked him, well, how how long have you worked in the tattoo industry? He's like, oh, I haven't worked in the tattoo industry. And I was like, okay, well, how often have you interacted with like tattoo parlors? Well, we're doing meetings with them now. And then I'm like, do you have any tattoos? He's like, I'm getting some. (laughs) And I'm just like, what? Dude, get out of here. Like run as quickly as you can out of this business you're not going to enjoy it because you're just not who that customer, you're not one of your own customers. You got to scratch your own itch and be excited about scratching your own itch. That's what we've been doing. And that's why I've been in it for 13, 14 years at this point. So the first company, Time Doctor, right? Um, That's the one that you've been in for 13, 14 years. You guys are up Mm -hmm. to a couple hundred employees. Yep. Just under 200 right now actually. And uh, obviously that number fluctuates dependent upon what kind of sales campaign we're running. But we've we've built that as a really good basis. And then about six years ago, five and a half, six years ago, we started running remote conference, which really was born out of our frustration of remote work being seen as lifestyle businesses for a lot of people, particularly venture capitalists. Yeah. Isn't that a cute little lifestyle business that you have? And I'm just like, it's not a lifestyle business. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a hundred million dollar business. It's a billion dollar business, right? Like it's it's a huge a higher margin part of right? yeah. It's a high margin. I mean, it's a SaaS business number one, which is incredibly powerful. But you know, it was just this perspective that if all of your employees are not in one place, then you're not a serious business. Then you're a small business, and you're a business that doesn't matter. And obviously that trend completely reversed with COVID. But up until that point, the community of what I like to call remote first companies, the remote pioneers that I interviewed throughout the book, they were building massive businesses, but just no one really cared. And the vast majority of those companies were actually bootstrapped, which was ironic because we couldn't really raise any money because VCs for love them or hate them, they are really kind of 
they're like signal tracking tools, right? They have to figure out the right processes and the right kind of signal to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to invest in this type of company. And one of the things that just pulls you completely off of their lead list is, oh, well, they're working remotely. They must not be serious or they must not be able to really build something that's innovative. But there are tons of companies that are doing it. I I argue all the time. When's the last time that you checked out the Ethereum offices? How about the Bitcoin offices? What about like WordPress or Shopify, right? These companies that run the majority of the internet and almost all cryptocurrency are completely remote organizations. And there's thousands of different companies that are doing exactly the same. We touch on those in the book and we really kind of show people with the conference and the book that you can actually build a billion dollar business and you can do it remotely. So all these companies, all these founders that you interviewed, largely bootstrapped, largely VC ignored, we'll call them for better or for worse, right? What other trends did you see in 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 what either the way that things were being managed or in, in traits of these founders or of companies, anything that stuck out? So incredibly simple. And as I went through these interviews, I realized it and it hit me like a brick in the face. Almost all of the remote pioneers that I interviewed for the book had one single thing in common, which I call asynchronous management, which is the ability to be able to manage people without simultaneously interacting with them, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit of a hard concept for people to get, particularly if they've never been exposed to remote work before. But I do a 40-hour work week, and I probably interact with staff about four out of those 40 hours. So the other 90% of my time, I'm actually focused on what my friend Cal Newport calls deep work, which is the ability to be able to have everything at your disposal to be able to solve hard and difficult problems, but do it autonomously on your own. So asynchronous management basically provides you all of the processes, systems, and accountability measures to actually deploy work at scale without asking for permission from someone else in order to actually accomplish that work. Difficult to get your head around, but once you actually accomplish it, then you can build companies like WordPress or Shopify or GitLab, you know, these businesses that are just doing billions and billions of dollars a year and they don't actually talk to each other. So who who are the folks that are doing it the best? Is it the Shopify, obviously Time Doctor, but is it the Shopify's, you know, you keep referencing them as, as an example, WordPress as an example, who are some other great companies doing it right? So WordPress was really kind of one of the first companies that did it. And when you look at the basis of remote work, it really stemmed out of the open source community because they couldn't afford to actually, I mean, they're basically nonprofits, so they couldn't afford to be able to make these types of investments in office space. So companies like WordPress are really good. Another great pioneer is Basecamp. They were very, very early. I actually wrote one of the most archetypal books on remote work, which is called Remote, which I have here. And then later on, we've got companies like GitLab. Uh, Shopify actually went remote during the pandemic, but they've been able to scale down on it and do it really aggressively and successfully. Coinbase was actually the largest company to go IPO that for the first time in history, they were able to state, and it was a $144 billion IPO. The first time in history, they were able to state that their headquarters was nowhere for their IPO documents because they said anything else would be a lie. 
right? And I remember way back in the day, 13 years ago, it was so difficult for us to be able to get a credit card account. I mean, now we have like platforms like Stripe and stuff like that. So it's just really easy to be able to set all that stuff up. But you had to go through a ton of red tape to actually get to the point in which you could get one of those things. And we set up an office in Las Vegas, which we still have to keep because <laughs> all, of our, all of our corporate headquarters stuff, it goes to this little tiny building that's basically the size of a closet. And there's one person in there that literally receives the mail, opens it, digitizes it, and then sends it to us. And and like that's what remote companies had to do to be taken seriously and legitimately in the market. It's changed now, obviously, but it was so frustrating yeah. way back in the day because you just couldn't really the the system was built for on-premise. It wasn't built for remote. What other trends stood out? Oof. I think that, well, some of the things I'm really excited about right now is where we're going with regards to remote work. I think that probably in the next 36 months, you're going to see a massive expansion of the asynchronous work stack, which was, is, and still is actually the remote work stack, but just kind of deployed in a bigger way. So there's currently no project management tools specifically designed for asynchronous work. That I think is going to be huge. When you look at the bureaucracy of remote work, that's something that's completely exploded. I don't, I'm invested in some of these companies, but deal, remote, globalization partners, these are all companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they're trying to solve the ability to be able to pay remote workers legally and efficiently, which is a huge infrastructure piece inside of remote work, telecommunications. When you're talking about actually doing Zoom calls, how do you go synchronous and how do you do it efficiently? You've got Facebook that completely pivoted their entire business towards deploying work in the metaverse. That's what, that's what they believe work will be in the future, which is incredibly exciting. I don't know whether or not they'll actually succeed at it or whether they've got the right bet. But I mean, we're talking about you know, I don't know how big Facebook is, but it's part of Fang, right? So it's like, <laughs> that's one of the keystones of tech and they're going all in on remote work. So we're seeing these huge transitory movements towards remote work. And right now, even though we've already been going through the pandemic for two and a half years, that infrastructure is now just starting to move over to the point where you can deploy a Fortune 500 company and do it remotely. And I would probably say we're still not quite there yet, actually. There's a couple other pieces I put, uh, I was talking to Deloitte last week and I really asked them and was pushing them, do you have a product for remote work compliance inside of Deloitte? Because those are the consultants to the world. They don't currently have it, but they're thinking about doing this kind of stuff. Like that's when you're going to start to see these Fortune 500s that are saying, I can do it remotely. I can take my 500,000 employees, let them be remote, and it entirely connects to our mission, which is trying to help facilitate that movement because startups pretty much know how to work remotely at this point, and they're doing it really, really well. It's getting the Fortune 500, 100,000 plus employee organizations and switching them remote is the next big challenge. I mean, this whole asynchronous management or ability to to manage people without interaction, right? Executing that at scale 
weren't some of those consulting firms some of the first to be able to implement that? Or were they laggards in there? Do I have that wrong? No. So you're to a degree, you're right. I think they were calling it different things. So when you look at Deloitte, they'll give you a lot of products on how to build process documentation and systems inside of your your organization, SOPs, that kind of stuff. Well, that's like a core tenant of asynchronous management, which is the platform is the manager, not the individual. So the platform is what's actually supposed to teach the majority of information to the team members inside of the organization. And when you look at large corporates, they have all that stuff. Like sign up just for fun, apply to McDonald's, uh, and you'd be blown away at how perfected all of their systems are and all of their processes. Like that's their superpower is the ability to be able to take any type of labor, regardless of how intelligent they are, and get them deployed effectively inside of their organization. And right now, when you think of tech startups, we're actually only focused on the smartest people in the room, but the real superpower is being able to take any type of person, regardless of their intelligence or their educational background, and make them profitable for the organization. So large corporates do this, Deloitte does this, and I think that they just need to be able to make a little bit of a transition over before they can really apply it towards the remote work realm. But we've been doing that for years and years. I actually have a friend of mine. I kind of call him the, I don't know, what's the the yellow brick road guy behind the curtain? The the emperor? No, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Uh, I kind of call him the Wizard of Oz. He took a $500 million investment and turned it into $25 billion in under 10 years by buying companies, redeploying them remotely, and within three months, he's doubled their EBITDA. Wow. So it was just like, and he doesn't want to tell anyone about this because he's got the magic sauce. Like he employs 2,500 people for all these companies. And it's like, oh, do you need one system admin per company? No, you need one per four companies. But he has the scale to be able to work on companies like that. and. That is going to happen at scale for all companies very, very soon once we recognize that we can disconnect the office from the work that's being done. So I want to throw in a a word and get your reaction here. And you mentioned a few companies that are Web3, right? You mentioned Coinbase and you mentioned Facebook, which is kind of starting to make a Web3 transition, if you will. You you can't really call them a Web3 company, but they're really a Web2. But ultimately, the idea of a DAO or decentralized, right? A de- decentralized aut- autonomous organization. How does that connect to yeah. what you've talked about so far? I think that's just a further extension of what we're talking about, right? Like that's the next step for companies that in the last decade were like WordPress or even just like standards organizations where we're going to move to utilities. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether or not Web3 is going to really... So when I think about how to extract capital out of those organizations, it's going to be an interesting one. Like who owns a DAO? How does that go public? Right. I don't know. Right. So like if you can't if you can't take a public, then the whole VC engine that people use to be able to get to that point 
may not actually be a viable direction for those types of organizations, but maybe I'm wrong. I haven't studied it enough to really truly understand the ins and outs of it, but I think that the beauty of it right now is because you require such a smaller amount of initial capital to be able to get these companies started, you can start them on such a small amount of money that they can be bootstrapped and succeed and succeed at scale. And once they're actually just running, I mean, the ownership perspective of, hey, yeah, go in and do some work and you're going to get equity on it. I mean, at this point right now, I have switched my rule, which is I do not do anything for money for other companies. I only accept equity because I've realized that over a 10-year span, the equity is worth may more than any reasonable amount of money that I can charge them right now. And I think that that's probably also going to be really smart when you think about some of these engineers right now that are saying, yeah, okay, I'm going to work for this DAO or that DAO and get that equity stake that might be worth hundreds of millions of dollars in the future. Yeah, well, great, great points there. So as you think about some of your journey in, in starting Time Doctor and you know, getting to the point where you've gotten today, what are some of the, some of the biggest growth milestones or growth roadblocks that you saw as part of that journey? Biggest one earlier on is get to money as quickly as humanly possible. And don't be scared about asking people for money as early as humanly possible. And I can give you a story that kind of alludes to that. So the first year and a half of Time Doctor, it was a free trial. Or sorry, it was like basically free. So we didn't have a free trial. There was no trial. You could just sign on and it was an open beta. And we had about 6,000 customers at that point that were using it on a weekly basis, which we thought was pretty good. This was way back in like 2011, 2012. And we were so terrified about switching it over to a paid product because we were getting a whole bunch of attention from other companies. Like other companies wanted to actually buy us out completely and integrate our technology into what they were doing. And we thought, well, we might just completely blow the tires out of our growth if we don't, if we switch it over to paid. But then we also realized, well, we need to actually pay our bills because uh, we're bleeding money like crazy. And we were bootstrapped at that point. I mean, like crazy. I think we were losing 15 grand a month. And first month that we switched over to pay, we made 6,000 MRR, I remember, and only 10% of our user base switched from free to paid. However, the amount of hours that they were tracking, 10x. So we had the same amount of activity on our platform than we did before. The other really great thing that happened is we started to get hate mail. <laughs> we started to get emails like, your app sucks. It's not working properly. I'm going to quit. And that was exactly the information that we needed. So I always tell founders, divide signal versus noise. So just because you have a bunch of free users that use your product, that means shit in comparison to actually getting paid customers that are using your product and get angry when they're not happy. You're not measuring the amount of inside of your product. If you're not doing that, then you're you're basically measuring nothing and you're going down product routes that are actually going to be detrimental to your overall roadmap from a product perspective. 
And I wish we had learned that two years earlier because we'd probably be an extra 20 or 30 million ARR ahead of where we are right now. So that's, I mean, that's a, that's a huge lesson learned. You've also had an instance, I think, you know, more recently where the flip side of that became a really important thing to focus on, right? Having a free trial, getting more attention versus, you know, getting more paying customers. Can you talk about that dichotomy? Yeah, well, February to March, February of 2020, we had maybe 5,000 trials that were coming in. And in March, we had 35,000. Like, we're talking the very definition of hockey stick growth, right? Like, they all talk about that. You can see my, I don't want to show you my chart mobile data because it might have a bit with it, but it was just literally like, it was a hockey stick. It was nuts. And one of the ways that we ended up winning out of all of our competitors, and we were number one in the market before, but we just definitively became number one was number was before this whole the whole thing started we really focused on remote so a whole bunch of our competitors were doing different use cases that were not remote and we just stuck with remote because it was a fundamental component of our mission and that's kind of a black swan event that you can't take into consideration but we always knew that remote work was going to be the market that, that was expanding by 5 to 10% every year so it just happened to expand by 200% in one year. <laughs> and that was that Black Swan event. But we knew that the endpoint was going to effectively be the same. But the way that we absorbed all of those customers was we had a really good product-led funnel as opposed to sales-led. And a lot of our customers or our competitors were really focusing on, okay, well, let's try to set up your account. You can deploy 100,000 seats on Time Doctor tomorrow if you want, without talking to us. And we took a lot of our design instances from our inspirations from companies like Google, where, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been able to get Google on the phone, but you literally have to spend a million dollars a month with them before they'll call you. Yeah. And we have that same philosophy, which is everything should be able to be accessible without contacting us because then when that black swan event does occur you can ride that wave on scale and you're not going to have uh, you're not going to have all those missed opportunities that a lot of our competitors have so when when people are thinking about do i focus on getting attention or do i focus on getting users or paying users what what are the things that they should be thinking about where one of those buckets matters more than the other. So it's an interesting discussion because I think my opinion has changed in the last 24 months. I would have said users are absolutely the first priority that you should be going after, paying users, because those are the ones that are actually going to tell you what you need to know. But my caveat to this, my slight edit would be you need to focus on paid users However, the new acquisition model, I think, is almost entirely freemium. When you're thinking about anything below a 10,000, anything below 10,000 ARR definitely has to be a freemium funnel. You cannot put salespeople on that type of a product and have it scale. The unit economics to be able to put SDRs and AEs on a product like that doesn't work. 
I mean, and there are people that probably could argue, oh, it would work if you just get really cheap SDRs and AEs. Well, listen, they're only going up in price and you're not going to be able to fix for that. So what we do is we actually have our team only focus on the top 5% of our funnel in any particular month. So that's it. Like we look at the seat count and then we say, sales team work on the top 5%. That's what we have throughput for outside of that. You're not, you're not touching it. You're not interacting with it. Yes, you could close them, but the funnel can close them. The product led funnel can close them on their own. And that is inherently a much more efficient model to be able to close customers on than running a sales led model. And this is only going to accelerate as the majority of market of the market is moving towards a freemium model, right? If you look at like Zoom right now, which we're on, uh, you probably have a paid deployment, but the beginning of Zoom was like 45 minutes free, I believe. I don't know if they've changed yeah, that at this point. Is. Yep. It still is. Yeah. So, right. So it's like, I can use the crap out of this thing for 45 minutes. You can get a lot of use from that, but it's pushing you gently into the moment of saying, oh, I don't want to be embarrassed again and have to cut a call <laughs> quickly at the 39 minute mark or something like that. Company that did this incredibly well inside of the remote work stack was Loom. So they were doing relatively well before the pandemic. And they realized about a month into the pandemic and just goes to show how fast moving they were and how effective they were as an organization. They went to a freemium model and they actually expanded out their freemium model. So then, you know, I could have gone from, I went from 5,000 leads to 35,000 leads a month. I could have gone from 5,000 leads to 350,000 leads a month, but with st still reserving the paid features for the, the customers that are going to really matter and then just getting a massive amount of attention from the rest of them. So like, mm -hmm. I would only pay attention to the paid users. Like I wouldn't really pay attention to what freemium users have to say. To, and no offense against freemium users, but they don't matter because they're not paying you. They don't have... They don't have a seat at the table uh, and they should never have a seat at the table. But in terms of word of mouth, I mean, how fast do, do tools like Loom and Zoom get built out when anyone can use it and can use it reliably every single day without paying for it? It's, it's huge opportunities. And as we've seen, I think just this last quarter, Facebook's cost per acquisition across their entire network, like their advertising budget per impression went down for the first time ever. Yeah. So now we're starting to start to see the absolute tip or climax of paid acquisition. And I think we're probably going to see a, see a stabilization point. If I was starting a SaaS business today, I would not get my first thousand customers from paid acquisition. It just wouldn't work. Uh, it would be way too expensive. And if you go down that line long-term, like I wouldn't, for me, I would say 20% of my user acquisition strategy should be deployed towards paid funnels. The other 80% has got to be word of mouth and free. Yeah, uh, well, well said. And when you're, when you're thinking about that transition or when you're thinking about that dichotomy between paid users and, and getting more attention, does it matter what stage of a business you're at? Like, does it matter, you know, for instance, is it, are you thinking differently about it when you're a really, really early stage company with a couple customers versus when you're where Time Doctor is today at 200? 
uh, the 200 customers? It, or sorry, 200 employees. Yeah, we got a couple hundred thousand customers <laughs> now. I, I would say that it's that you also have to take just the the business model of SaaS into consideration. So let's say I'm at sub thousand customers and I know that I can do, uh, and let's just pick on paid acquisition as an example. I can acquire an extra hundred customers per month through paid acquisition. If your churn numbers are solid, and that would be in the SMB space below 3% monthly, that compounding interest from the referrals that you generate from those 100 customer cohorts, 10 years down the road is 10 million ARR, 20 million ARR, right? So you can, you can think of it in that context, but it's very difficult because you might run out of gas in between. So I would say if you can afford to be able to make those investments early and understand paid, go ahead and do it. You know, there's, there's a lot of these companies that have just completely committed to product led and they don't have any other arrows in their quiver yeah. right it's just like oh well we're gonna go viral yeah. it doesn't work man like it, like the, i mean it does sometimes but then when it's over it's over and then what the hell you're supposed to do next oh, right it's just like it'll be out of cash maybe. yeah the, I, i'm i you've probably seen some of those instances where it's like yeah we went i mean uh clubhouse Perfect example. Perfect example, right? I don't know about you. Everyone and their dog was on Clubhouse two years ago, right? During the pandemic. That was going to be the new Facebook. I mean, I remember the valuations of Clubhouse being insane. And now they're a rounding error. I mean, they probably still do have a little bit of activity that's happening, but like I haven't logged on in months and months and months. And it's like, where's their next move? Because once you have that, if you have nothing else to acquire your customers with, you're going to be stuck. I think if you've got a one, if you've got like a one track, you're, it, it's always just a, I don't want to kind of say something that maybe I'll regret. Basically, if, you, if you're like a one trick pony, you're one step away from your company completely imploding. Whereas for us, we've got so content, community, paid acquisition, and uh, referrals. Those are the four big bases of Time Doctor's growth. And I could knock out paid tomorrow and we would still be okay. Yep. Uh, I could actually knock out SEO tomorrow and we'd still be okay because our net revenue is positive. So, you know, you look at all of those things and you try to really figure out, okay, well, if you lost this tomorrow, what would happen to your business? And I think it's really important to be able to run those exercises as often as possible because sometimes those things do happen. There was a company that I was working with that was delivering snacks inside of offices. And I worked with them in like 2019 and things were going really well until all the offices closed everywhere on planet earth. And overnight, you know, their numbers went down by 85%. And it's like, shit, we're screwed. And what they did is they pivoted to a Slack app where you could literally order snacks on the company dime that would be delivered directly to people's homes. Didn't end up working out. I won't tell you the name of the company, but it was 
I respect those types of pivots, that quick movement, which is so important, but it was just a little too, um, a little too late, unfortunately. Yeah. And there were a lot of those pivots that, that occurred when we started to see that massive shift, as you pointed out, towards work from home. So some worked, some didn't. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the way we typically close these shows off, Liam, is with just a series of five kind of rapid fire questions. Call it the Founder Five. And uh, they're all around your growth as a founder and your company's growth. The first one is the number one metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. Churn. Anyone that's below, above 10 million ARR in SaaS, that's the first and last number that you should look at every day. All the other ma- numbers don't matter. It's about keeping customers, not getting more at that point. Yep. Top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. Get really good at hiring people and convincing them to work in your company. That is the only way that you're going to grow. You can't do it the way that you used to do it from zero to a million or a million to 10 or even or even 10 to 50. You might have some impact on the growth of the company. If you want to build a $100 million business, you need to be able to completely extricate yourself from the business and the the executives and the managers and the operators inside of that company are the ones that are going to be running it. If you can't recruit good people to be able to do it, uh, you will not succeed. And unfortunately, the majority of people that I see do a really bad job at doing it and they replace paychecks with leadership. So they just pay these people more money and that doesn't work in the long term. Uh, You can't buy loyalty. You have to earn it. That's a good one. Favorite book or podcast, other than your own, of course, that's helped you to grow? Zero to One by Peter Thiel is the best theoretical framework that I can think of for building a startup of any kind and really puts you in a fantastic framework of how to build not just a small business, but also a big business. And one that I've been reading recently, which has been great is inspired. And I can't remember the name of the author, but it is a book on product management. And I'm about two thirds of the way through it, but it's just completely changed my mindset on how to be able to build products quickly and efficiently. Nice. I love that. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. I haven't read that one. Zero to one is one of my favorites as well. Although it's ironic, sometimes the concepts of zero to one really seem to apply towards businesses well beyond one, (laughs) uh, even more than they do from zero to one. I mean, I think that you should reread that book a couple times because you'll actually learn a whole bunch of lessons that you wouldn't have otherwise known. The one that I, one of the chapters that I loved was talking about how Elon Musk used government funding to be able to fund Tesla and fund it into the company that it currently is today, just recognizing how to be able to take advantage of capital and execute on it effectively is a really interesting. It's not just for little tiny companies, it's for big ones too. So if you're yeah. sitting, if, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh, I'm doing a hundred million a year, I don't need to read it. You need to read it. You should definitely you need to crack it. it open. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Here's a little bit more unconventional of one. What actor would play you in a movie? Uh, Liam Neeson, because we both share the same first name and it wouldn't be confusing for him because people would say Liam and then he would just respond. 
but he'd have to get off the Irish accent and get more of a Canadian one. That's hilarious. Actually, funny story. I was in, I was in the Philippines and I was staying at this like long-term Airbnb. And for those of you that don't know, Manila is a massive city, 15 million people. Actually, it's 15 to 20 million people because people don't actually know how big Manila is. It's that big and that kind of loopy. So I go for this one month Airbnb and because it's a culturally different environment, there are two women that took care of the property and lived in the house with me. And I didn't understand that it would come with staff, right? And uh, they could only speak Tagalog, which is Filipino. And me in broken English, I'm trying to communicate to them my name. And I said, Liam, Liam Martin, like Liam Neeson, because I thought that's the most famous Liam that there is, right, that I know of. And one month later, the the manager of the property comes back and uh, she comes over to me and she said, so they think you're Liam Neeson, the actor, because I had introduced myself as Liam Neeson and that it all kind of made sense that they were like taking photos with me (laughs) and all this kind of stuff. And then she obviously set them straight. Um, But just the reality of different, like that miscommunication that that comes from those small miscommunications, which also kind of like applies to a whole bunch of things connected to your branding and the marketing of how you want to be able to run your products. It was, uh, it kind of blew me away. I was like, I feel I'm 30 years at least younger than Liam Neeson. Like how did they think that I was Liam Neeson? But yet they, they ran with it for an entire month. Well, I almost called you Liam Neeson in the intro today. So uh, that's ironic. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Hopefully, hopefully those Filipino ladies are listening in today. So, yeah. um, all right, last one. What is going to be the title of your autobiography when all is said and done? It's never going to exist because writing this book was incredibly difficult. But if I was going to, I would call it uh, maybe one to 100. I don't know. Like that. <laughs> uh, no, that probably wouldn't be right. I have a mission, actually. So every company is supposed to have a mission, but I have a personal mission. And I actually have these values and tenets that I have for myself, like be be comfortable being uncomfortable, attach your own mask before assisting others. You can't control the outcome, but you can control the effort. Success may slow you down, reflect, but keep your foot on the gas. And one of my personal missions is making the world a better place through technology and leaving a positive legacy for my family, friends, and the world at large. So even though that's not a very sexy title, probably leave a positive legacy for my family, friends, and world at large, uh, and how to hopefully do that and get other people to do that too. Yeah, and what a what a founder uh, what a founder focused message that is. Since we all kind of get started for some version of legacy connected to it. So that's, that's exactly great, man. I love it. I love it. Well, you've uh, you've given so much to the audience today. Liam and to me as well. But time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those listening help you out? I'd love it if they check out the book, Running Remote, which is available uh, at all bookstores. But to be honest with you, you guys are all going to download it on Amazon and you're probably going to get the audiobook. Uh, <laughs> go check it out. Five-star reviews are obviously very much welcome. And if you can't afford the book or going to the conference, which we do every single year, 
go to youtube.com slash running remote. All of our talks are up there for free. And if you want a masterclass in how to be able to build a remote team, it's there and it is free. And what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you directly? It's probably really difficult to be able to get in touch with me directly because I'm very protective of my time, but social media is the best. LinkedIn. Actually, you know what? YouTube is probably the place that I'm the most excited to be able to talk to people on. That's the only one that I still personally answer every single comment. Outside of that, uh, I generally have people that protect me from social media as much as humanly possible so that I don't get distracted. Love it. All right, man. This has been a treat. Thanks for joining us on The Dirt. Five-star review, running remote. We'll include all the links in the show notes today. And Liam, thanks for giving your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.